good. In fact, why don't you just pause, just take 30 seconds where you are. If you feel comfortable with this, just turn to someone next to you and say, what was it that you heard in Ryan and Susie, what they've just shared, or maybe Tony's story, that you found really compelling? Would you just take a little moment to just, just turn to someone next to you and say, this is what I found really compelling. Go ahead. Very good. Well, why don't you go ahead and continue that conversation afterwards. It's very good. As you draw your gaze to the screen here, we woke up this week to learn of the news that there was an earthquake in Syria and Turkey. And uh, the initial indication was that there might have been a few thousand people tragically killed and as a result of the earthquakes that were perhaps a little bit localised. Well, it, as the weeks unfolded, we've realised the, the extra, extraordinary, I guess, expanse of what's actually happened. Uh, 25,000 people and upwardly now lost, losing their lives and a further 5 million people perhaps displaced because of the severity of this. And I thought it would be most appropriate for us at this moment where you just have this sense of another catastrophe. What on earth can we do? There's this wonderful passage in the Bible where Paul writes, you should learn to carry each other's burden and in so doing you fulfill kind of the, the way of Jesus. And I think that not only extends to, to God's family, but also the wider, broader human family as well. So I just thought it would be apt right now if we just pause for a moment. And if you'd like, I'm going to pray. It seems like such a small thing. And yet we want to invite God in to do work even amongst all of the great difficulty and grief and loss that's occurring right now. So I'm just going to pray. Uh, Father God, we don't understand these things. They cause us great anxiety, so much more so the people who are experiencing uh, the devastation now as uh, bodies are being excavated and found people alive and, and uh, aid is being rushed through borders and all of the political dynamic there. And so God, we ask that you might open uh, the heart of humanity for others and that um, nations will give and give generously. That uh, passage might be formed for people moving into those areas so that aid can be distributed where needed. God, would there be amazing moments of miracles taking place where um, individuals are still found and found alive. Um, God, we also ask and pray that you might comfort the grieving and the brokenhearted right now because that's what's happening, um, not only in that place, but around the globe in so many different ways. And Father, as we turn our gaze towards uh, this church family here, I ask that you might equip us and enable us to carry one another. Uh, when there's a high, there's a high shared by all. When there's a low, there's a low shared by all. Because there's this great connection and family 
and sense of oneness that we gather together in you. And so we bring all these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a series called Quietly Loud, and some of you saw the image and went, I don't get it. There's a woman who's holding a megaphone, and bubbles are coming out at the end of it. And so what we're trying to do is portray this idea of the juxtaposition of bubbles, not loud sounds, soft sounds, and exploring this theme over the next term called Quietly Loud. Why are we doing that? Well, for a number of reasons, um, one of them being just before Christmas time, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Thorburn. There is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Thorburn. He um, held the position of the um, Essendon CEO for all of 24 hours. It was one of the most shortest reigns of a CEO in AFL history. And the dynamic that went on behind that was because he was also a chairman of a board for church in the city, city on a hill. He was appointed and some people ran through all of the different um, talks in the past years before that he hadn't given, but had been given about two very sensitive areas, two very sensitive touch points in our community right now. And one of them that I understand was, was put together and presented in, in a not very sensitive way. And so they called him back in and they said, you have to make a decision now. Do you want to be the CEO of uh, the, the church or, if you like, on the board of directors of the church or CEO of the Essendon Football Club? Well, he thought that it was a, a, he was being pushed into um, a decision to make between faith and work and he chose faith. Stood on that conviction. He was stood down immediately from that. The reality of that situation signals to many people that we are in a, in a radically changing landscape. Um, Christianity and Jesus folk are no longer in the centre um, of our culture. In fact, they are being dispersed from the centre. And the goal is not to actually reclaim the middle because there's been some things happened in that space in the name of Jesus, if you like, on behalf of that are really unsavoury and painful for people. And so what I think is being presented before Jesus' followers is to learn to retell and inhabit the story again of who Jesus is with fresh new words, fresh new ways, and if you like, a reset. So we're doing this topic over the next term. We're circling around Jesus in the book of Luke, and we want to be asking the questions, where was Jesus quiet and where was Jesus loud? Last week, we talked about quiet, the idea that God uh, wants you to walk deeply with him and his disciple, that Jesus' disciples asked, uh, they said to him, teach us how to pray. And he painted this amazing picture of God being a good, good parent. And as a result of that, you can pray and bring needs before him because he hears so much more so even his spirit's presence can abide with you in the most difficult of circumstances. Well, this week, we get to talk about a loud side, and we're going to go back and forward, loud, quiet, loud, quiet, over the weeks ahead. So I hope you'll track with us. Um, if you like, the quiet has to do with posture. We've spoken a lot about that over the, the last year. But loud has to do with formed convictions and being able to stand on them and drawing a line and knowing what do I stand on, what do I not stand on. And so that's how we're going to progress today. So if you'd like to join with me, um, if you want to grab a phone and look up Luke chapter 4, 16 to 30, or if you have your Bible there, uh, Luke chapter 4, 16 to 30, I'm just going to, to run through this this morning in the time that we have available to us. And as you're finding that space, there's just three things to set the things up this morning as we plunge into the life of Luke again as he narrates Jesus. He's a physician, he's a doctor, which means he's, he's quite interested in details. 
Um, he characterizes and frames his world as being the rich being the oppressors and the poor being the oppressed. Now, that is not altogether different to the way in which many places in the world are. But I also need to signal here that that's the frame he's working by, but that some of the most generous people I know are wealthy. In fact, you might have wealth and you might utilize that for the benefit of others. And so this construct doesn't always just sit but that's the one in which he's speaking into. And lastly, he talks often about the empowering presence of God in someone's life by his Holy Spirit. So let's just dive in, shall we? You good to go? Here we go. It says here that uh, in, in number 16, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. You see, Jesus was coming, if you like, to his hometown and perhaps looking forward to a hometown coming. Nazareth was the place in which he'd been brought up. It's north of Jerusalem and uh, it's the place in which he called home. It goes on and says this. In the synagogue, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, it's not like the the, the phone that you have in front of you or the Bible that you might be familiar with, but you'd have to actually probably pre-nominate which part of the Bible and there'd be a scroll, the Isaiah scroll, and it would kind of be wrapped up so you'd literally scroll through it to find the place that you actually want to read from. And he scrolled all the way through to chapter 61 and a little bit of 58, and uh, this is what he read. He said these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor, anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Powerful words from the prophet Isaiah, who was speaking to a people, God's people, who had spent time in Babylon, north of Israel, where they had been sent away for their, their unfaithfulness. They had been exiled and they were the captives who had been set free and returned home to the land of Israel. And it's in that place that the prophet Isaiah, he speaks again of someone, this kind of figure, this servant-like figure, this human that God would operate through in order to bring, if you like, these words of fulfillment to be. Not just for the people of God, but through them for the world around about, if you like, extension to the entire nations. This last little phrase here, the Lord's favour, is a hint of this framework that can be drawn earlier in the Bible in the book of Leviticus. Can anything good come out of Leviticus? Yes. And so it's this picture of jubilee. What's that? When God was speaking to Moses, he said, when you inhabit the land, the people, my people, every 50th year what I want is to declare a jubilee where if you are indebted to someone, the debts are waived. If you have had to sell your land because you've fallen on hard times, um, that land is not going to be taken away from you forever. In fact, in the 50th year, you'll have it restored. If you have had to make yourself servitude to another family or to someone else in the country, what will happen to you is that after a period of time, 50 years, 
that servitude and that slave, you'll be set free and returned back to your, your family home. So it was something that the banks would hate because if you practice this, there would be a total collapse of the world economy overnight. But it was something that we're not sure if it was actually ever practiced, but it was this, this idealized and, and something that, that was at the heart of God is that he wants equity for people, for all people in various and different places. And so Jesus proclaims these words. And when you read the commentary about this, you find commentators wringing their hands and doing somersaults because they ask this question. When Jesus talked about the poor, like did he mean the poor? Or when Jesus talked about the poor, did he mean kind of like poor in spirit, like they're humble and they're contrite in heart and those things? Like which poor is he talking about? Is he talking about the poor poor? Or is he talking about the poor in heart and poor in spirit? Well, Jesus goes for the fruit. He actually talks about the poor. When he meant the poor, he meant the poor. How do we know? Because in chapter 58, just near where he's drawn from, um, it says these words to God's people living in the land. He says, If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall shine in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. He's talking specifically to them. I don't think you could get more specific than this, right? If you see someone who is in need and you have food, you should give it to them. And if you practice this kind of generous living and behavior, then you will shine like a light in noonday. And all people will be able to see this because you're inhabiting and practicing what is at the very heart of God. So when Jesus spoke about the poor, he, he meant the poor. <laughs> The problem is for many Jesus people and for our community at large, we've inhabited a split world thinking for far too long. That somehow that God is interested in the spiritual inner side of the human being, but not the physical side. And so what we've done with that is that we've said, well, Jesus wants to talk to the spiritual side so you get to know him, so you can go to heaven and so you can have all of your forgivenesses abided for you and you can be with him for eternity. And the physical side, well, that's a little bit complicated. But then we bump into Jesus who heals people of blindness, literally, and deaf. And he heals people of leprosy and skin diseases. And he provides food for them in the wilderness. When you talk to Jesus, it's as though he sees human beings slightly differently. It's as though Jesus sees human beings made in the image of God and he loves them as wholes not just as souls. So this split worldview thinking needs to be integrated. And when you integrate split world thinking, you don't look at someone just as a soul to be rescued, but as a human being to be lifted out of. Because God loves that person as a whole. Do you know here this morning, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God loves you as a whole. Not just part of you, all of you. You see, one of our challenges, if I was to speak into the Jesus world right now, it would be like this, is that in that split world thinking, we've said, ah, oh, I can secure my place in heaven. And now maybe God materially does want to bless me abundantly. 
because that's what he really wants to do as well. And so there's been this language of blessing. I heard someone describe it to me this way. They said, I heard of a lady who was in need. She needed a car. And she'd always thought she'd like a a red Ford Mustang. And it just so happens that um, she knew someone who was started working for Ford and they cut a deal. And after driving that car back home because she could spend a little bit more, the words describing for that was that, hey, God met her in her time of need and that is blessing. Well, I'd like to take that red Ford Mustang and if you drive one here today, I just want you to know that I'm not picking on the red Ford Mustangs. I hope you understand. Um, It's the Teslas as well. No. (laughs) I'd like to drive that. (laughs) We love you, Chad. We love you here in this place as well. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'd like to drive that car down the streets of Syria today and see if that cuts it. I wonder in this season in which we find ourselves no longer in the middle inhabiting new spaces that we might be found to be a little bit naked in that that kind of thinking doesn't cut it. And and maybe it's actually got more to do with greed dressed up as blessing than anything else. But then at the same time I say that, I've got three fingers pointing back at me. Because in that three fingers pointing back at me, I realise I've got a nice house and I've got a nice car. And what does that mean for me? You see, if you're here in this place and God has been generous to you, you know that it's not generosity towards you just for you being generous. It's so that you can be generous towards someone else. So God's against accumulation. He wants redistribution, and that's part of his heart. I wonder if the Jesus mob need to learn to stop treating God like a cosmic ATM and start tapping into the heart of God for other people, whoever they are, because he loves them as holes, not as souls. So let's get back to Nazareth. So Jesus, he, he rolled up the scroll again and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. <laughs> and this is what he said. This is where he gets loud. Are you ready? Jesus just gets loud here. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The words that the prophet spoke about that person to come has now actually come and is coming true in me. And in that moment when there's this stillness and this quiet and they're wondering what on earth does this mean and say they say these things to him because if you like, just back up for a moment. Jesus didn't arrive at this moment just on a whim He didn't arrive at this moment because he woke up in the morning and and ate something nice for breakfast and felt confident. He didn't power dress in his suit and go, I've got something to say. It was because he had spent years immersed in prayer and the words of God that he actually formed a conviction that he could say it. So I want to say, if you want to get loud, you first need to learn to be quiet before God, so those deep sense of who God is will resonate in you so then you can begin to critique the world around about. And so it says of this, the response was, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But then something here shifts. Because there's some words in this, in this question that makes you wonder, there's something else going on underneath. They say, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, wasn't it? He's just, he grew up with us, right? He's Joseph's son. I mean, come on. 
How could he be saying these things about himself? How? Joseph's son, you the guy we grew up with. We, we saw him. And Jesus says these words. Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. Well, some of you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you do in Capernaum. I mean, you perform miracles up there. To us, you seem just like Joseph's son, one of the hometown kids. Well, go ahead. Why don't you do a miracle on demand? So we can see what you did there is true from you now. And in this moment here, Jesus is confronted with what does he do? And he dials it up and he gets a little louder. And this is what he says. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in a prophet's hometown. And then he dials it up a little bit more. He says, you want to talk about miracles on demand? You want to talk about who God gives miracles to? Let's think about the two miracle workers in our culture, Elijah and Elisha, the great people, the prophets of old who God worked powerfully through. Let's just take them as examples. And he says this, The truth is this, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, and there was a severe famine all over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except a widow in Zarephath in Sidon which is a Phoenician area on the coast, which is outside of Israel. He said, you want to talk about miracles on demand? I tell you this, Elisha was sent by God to an outsider. And then as if to dial up a little bit more, and I wonder if this is the moment where Jesus flinched, embraced himself because of what he sensed was going to happen, because he puts his finger on the pulse of a raw nerve in that culture, in that time, in that place. And he says this, There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. The Syrian. And this Naaman gentleman was the commander of an army who'd been doing sorties into Israel, reaping destruction at And so he was an enemy of the state. And Jesus pulls out him as an exemplar and said, there were many people with leprosy, but God actually healed Naaman the prophet by dipping into the Jordan River seven times. And it was in this moment, it says, that everyone as one in the synagogue was filled with a rage and a fury. And they attacked Jesus because... He understood that there was this radical inward-looking sense of nationalism that had risen up by which they said, we are God's people and we want to take back the land by force and bring God's kingdom through violence and we will do that. And so Jesus, if you like, pulls two exemplars from outside the mob and says, now you want to talk about who God has a favor towards? If you like, Jesus puts his finger on the pulse of the people that have been supposedly, they should have been shining God's light. We're now emitting darkness. And so, if you like, you need to also understand that before the Jesus mob starts pointing fingers at other people outside their own mob, you need to understand that Jesus is actually having an in-house conversation among his own And saying, before you even start to look beyond, I want you to shine the light that you were called to give.
And so he presses on and it says this, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Not just a little bit put out, but rage. They got up, drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of a hill. I've been there before and it's a cliff on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. You want to talk about people called to emanate light, disseminating darkness? This is it. And Jesus calls it out. Because he wants to convey to them last week quietly, not only is God good, but that God is interested in the welfare of the outsider. Because he loves them equally too. Come on, guys. You know, when you feel the force of these words, you're kind of confronted with a different Jesus, aren't you? He's not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's the Jesus who actually stands on some convictions and is prepared to draw a line in the sand. Because he knows what's at stake. The nation of Israel are so bent on doing this that he warns them again and again and again. And it's the subterfuge that we often miss. And they do not take up his words of warning. They actually embody evil and repay it. And in AD 70, the whole thing comes crashing down when Titus' army comes and destroys the whole lot. And he bids them be the people that would shine light. One of the things I've always loved about New Community is that you have been learning to embrace generosity beyond yourselves. That's why we do our Engage Sunday mornings. To demonstrate on a wholesale that God loves people as wholes, not just as souls. It's an opportunity whenever we have a chance to be able to be generous and give, and to look beyond. It's why a Filipino girl can be encouraged to do study, to learn some new skills in midwifery, to help people in need. What I've heard and seen at New Community over many years is a sense of a people learning to shine a light because they know that if they've discovered Jesus, it's to reach beyond themselves. I wonder how God might be speaking to you today. If Jesus was to put a finger on a raw nerve, or an impulse or something that he would want to question I wonder what he might be saying to you today but his desire for you and for me is that we might be open vessels that we might call upon God and say would you fill me afresh with who you are that you might transform my heart 
so that I might graciously use my hands to serve you. Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to finish in prayer, in song. And if you'd like to join with us as an anthem towards Jesus, then would you do that from the heart today?